I'm Michael Hainsworth. The CD House Shadow Federal Budget for 2022 is titled Getting Serious, and its authors, Alexander Laurent, Don Drummond, and CEO Bill Robson write that in order to meet future challenges, Budget 22 needs to focus on achieving growth while reining in spending now. The trio writes that their shadow budget would ensure a sustainable path for federal and national finance with the aim of cutting the net debt to GDP ratio at the federal level from 48% to 42 by 2026. But why now? We're still dealing with COVID, and we now have a war in Europe, too. Robson tells me we will not be prepared for the next crisis, whatever it may be, if we don't start now. The tone of this shadow federal budget is very strongly one of a change of course in two key respects. One has to do with the performance of the economy. Uh, The other has to do with fiscal policy. Our concern is that federal uh, economic policies generally over the last few years, and very much so since the pandemic, have been dominated by short-term considerations, uh, a lot of spending, a lot of borrowing, and not enough attention to the drivers of growth for the economy and to the things that will make the debts that we've taken on sort of sustainable and intergenerationally fair. So what we're saying in this budget and the title Getting Serious uh, really says it all is that uh, it's time to get more grounded and take growth and fiscal sustainability seriously. Your co-author Don Drummond says we're in denial about the challenges we face and we're not prepared for future crises. Yet we seem to be lurching from crisis to crisis. Now we've got the war in Ukraine, of course. How does that uncertainty and the inflation that comes with geopolitics alter that course? It goes back to this uh, observation that we really seem to have been living for the moment. Uh, And Don Drummond, who in his public service career was uh, very front and center when the federal government was battling the deficits uh, of the 1990s and the unsustainable debt um, uh, is i think i can speak safely for him uh, concerned that the lessons of that era have been lost and uh, that we now seem to be steering the course, and I don't say that everybody thinks this way, but from the results uh, at the federal level, you would say that there's a real lack of concern about the amount of tax that we will eventually need to pay uh, for the programs that have already been committed to and that the programs that the government is currently talking about, uh, that there's no real sense that there are limits to how much the government can borrow uh, and no concern about who's going to pay those bills when they come due. And then the sustainability of fiscal policy raises a a third very important issue, and that is about the economy's ability to generate rising living standards and tax revenue over the long run. Uh, In the last federal budget, there was a chart showing a very kind of rosy scenario for growth 
uh, better than what the federal government had shown in the past, better than a lot of private sector forecasters are calling for, but absolutely no information about why they think that's possible. You don't get growth if you don't have people working, if you don't have investment that gives people tools, and if you don't have productivity growth that lets us get more uh, for every uh, hour we work and, and for every uh, unit of capital that we use. And um, though the attention to those building blocks is very much a, a core function of what governments need to do, and we just have not been seeing that. The war in Ukraine is an example of something that we talk about only in general terms in the shadow budget. The problem with these rosy projections in which the economy grows very robustly um, and no new commitments come along in the budget to cause the uh, borrowing to, to um, you know, continue at an unsustainable rate. The problem with those things is that they, they don't uh, allow for any setbacks. Now, in the shadow budget, one of the ones that we particularly single out is the possibility of climate change. If the world is getting warmer the way the government maintains that it is, uh, and many people uh, believe that it is, and if the consequences of that are going to be as severe as many people argue, then there ought to be room in the budget for mitigating measures. Uh, there ought to be some some recognition in the budget that there might be a negative impact on economic growth. And what's peculiar is that although this government talks about climate change all the time, you see nothing about it in their fiscal plan. So that's a longer term threat that um, you would want a prudent budgeter would allow for. Uh, but then when you look at the other types of crises that come along, the financial crisis a bit more than a decade ago, COVID just now, war in Europe at the moment, um, it's just prudent to say we've got to be resilient to these setbacks. You can't set a budget course that assumes that the uh, trouble that we're having at the moment will go away and then there won't be any more trouble. Uh, we know there's going to be trouble. We naturally don't foresee the details of everyone, but a responsible fiscal policy has to allow for those things in the forecast and, and preserve some fiscal flexibility to deal with them and when they arise. So your primary concern is we just don't seem to have a path towards more fiscal accountability in the budget. Well, the federal government doesn't seem to have any uh, timetable, any serious timetable for getting back to a balanced budget. The best they can offer us is a debt ratio, uh, the ratio of debt to GDP that does not continue climbing. Um, that is not very reassuring. There are many reasons to think that the bottom line on the annual budget really matters uh, a lot uh, on its own. Um, I'll mention just two of them. Uh, one being that it's a very easy to communicate target. It's very easy to see if you've done it or not. The debt to GDP ratio, GDP is a bit of an abstract number. It gets revised statistically all the time, so it's by no means as hard. And the other thing that's uniquely valuable about aiming for balance on the bottom line is it makes you think about every dollar. If you have an idea to spend a dollar, then you have to think about what other use you might have had for that dollar? Is there another spending program that you are willing to cut? Uh, if not, are you willing to raise a dollar of additional revenue in a, a order to cover that spending program? Um, when you're 
when you don't have a, any kind of tight bottom line constraint, you don't go through those disciplines. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen the federal government spending so much on so many different things over the last little while. Nobody has been saying, justify that. Tell us what the cost is in terms of the thing you didn't do or the revenue that you needed to raise. So you're urging the federal government to reduce the net debt to GDP ratio. Uh, overall, I think it's close to 104%. The Americans are at 118%. You want to see it reduced to 42%, but this isn't exactly an apples-to-apples apples comparison here, is it? Well, the federal government itself uh, currently has a debt ratio that's getting to uh, close to 50% of GDP. It's a little under that. Um, we do want to see that come down. A declining debt-to-GDP ratio, it may, it may not be a very solid anchor for fiscal policy. Um, we've, we've, we've seen how slippery it proves, um, but you definitely want to see it coming down as a sign of, of your fiscal health. The international comparisons are tough to make for a couple of reasons. Uh, we have not just federal governments, and we also have provincial governments. Uh, other countries have different setups, and so you may or may not see uh, uh, comparable numbers when it comes to national governments. Um, but the United States is a particularly good one to focus on, not just because it's heavily in debt, but also because it's, in a sense, got the world's ultimate best credit rating. The U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world. The U.S. government is going to continue to be able to borrow long past the point when others can. So instead of taking comfort from the fact that there are other big borrowers out there, we actually ought to be nervous because what that means is that every dollar of potential lending uh, can go in a bunch of different directions. And it's not obvious why people would lend to Canada uh, when the United States might be might seem like a more secure place to, to put their money. So uh, these relative debt figures are um, uh, not the, 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 the firmest anchors for fiscal policy, but I think it's fair to say that um, you want to see that ratio going down and you do, and you definitely don't want to be in a position where if creditors start getting nervous about getting paid back, um, you don't stand you sort of stand out as a relatively risky. A place to lend to. One reason that we really want to see that debt ratio go down has to do with intergenerational fairness. Um, if you go back, we don't say this in the in the shadow budget, but it's a, a instructive episode. At the time of the financial crisis back in 2008-09 and, and the recession that followed, the federal government went into deficit and ran up a lot of debt. And what it did in the subsequent years was it got that debt ratio back down again. And in a sense, what that meant is that the people who had benefited from the federal government's borrowing at the time of the crisis and the recession were pretty much the same people who then helped to pay it back. What's concerning about the current situation is that we've had a very large run-up in debt as a result of COVID, and the government's projections show that ratio coming down at a pace that is so gradual uh, that you can reasonably ask what other types of setbacks come along. Is it actually going to drop at all? What we argue in the shadow budget is that similarly to what happened at the time of the financial crisis and the recession in 2008-09, the people who benefited from the measures the government took to mitigate the impact of COVID ought to be on the front line when it comes to paying it back. Don't just pass the burden forward to today's youngsters once they're grown up. Uh, for one thing, they suffered grievously as a result of COVID. Young people had their schooling interrupted. Uh, the ones that graduated into the workforce during COVID had a very rough time. 
why would you uh, there's no justification for then uh, saying well in addition to all that uh, they're the ones who should pay back the debt that we incurred so that we who benefited from those transfer payments could live better during the crisis it's a lot fairer for people to say uh, we benefited, we should pay it back so that when younger people are more grown up in future years and they face their own problems, they'll be able to start with a clean slate instead of still being pay, still paying off the bills that we ran up. You want to bring us from 50% federal net debt to 42%. So something's got to give. What's got to give? The main thing that needs to happen is that the federal government needs to uh, bring the COVID-related spending to a halt and be far more careful in what it commits to in the future. The difficulty that we have with the uh, baseline fiscal plan is not just that it's pretty lackadaisical when it comes to getting uh, the government's borrowing down, but it doesn't even include a lot of the things that they've been talking about. Uh, there's no national pharmacare program in there. There's no uh, universal basic income that a lot of people are talking about. And we have been through two years now where it seemed at times as though every time the prime minister stepped in front of a microphone, he was announcing uh, billions or tens of billions of dollars of new spending. So there's been quite a casual attitude towards that. And we really need to see that turn around. The other thing that we're recommending in the shadow budget, and this won't be popular, is we're recommending some tax increases. Uh, two of the ones that uh, we know are going to raise eyebrows and, and, and probably prompt some criticism is that we are recommending a higher rate on the GST. And we are also recommending that there should be a higher rate on transportation fuels. Now, the timing of that second one, uh, we're certainly not recommending that that happen tomorrow because uh, we're already having a huge price shock on fuels, as everyone knows. But the reason for putting those things into the plan is that um, there are bills to pay. Uh, it's important for people to uh, remember as an announcement happens that even if you borrow today to cover the cost of it, uh, you're going to be servicing that debt and ultimately it's going to come back at you in taxes. And in round numbers, $10 billion worth of spending is a point on the GST. So we have said that in order to cover some ongoing commitments that the government has made, it makes sense to raise the GST by a couple of pips. People won't like that. I don't actually think that the government is going to do that, certainly not in the in the short run, but it's part of getting grounded. If you want more spending from your governments, you have to be ready to pay the taxes because if you don't pay them now, you'll pay them later once the uh, debt uh, uh, mounts and the interest payments come due. So just be realistic. If you want the spending, if you can justify it, fine, but be ready to pay the taxes for it as well. Well, then square the circle for me because a lot of this deals in the idea that we need to be focused on things that reignite growth in the economy. Uh, a consumption tax by increasing the GST, wouldn't that be counterintuitive to that idea? Well, it's no fun and it certainly would dampen demand when it came in, but compared to the other options for raising taxes, it's by far the least damaging. We haven't been hearing about higher personal taxes, uh, but at some point with the course that we're on, uh, that's that's going to come up. And um, of course, it does get advocated from time to time, not by the government. Um, but uh, we will likely see that in future budgets, uh, given the course that we're on. And the trouble with higher personal taxes is they discourage work in Canada. Um, some people who stay in Canada may not work as much. 
uh, with the higher tax rates. Uh, more important for Canada because we suffer a very significant annual loss of talent and earnings to the United States is the possibility that people respond to higher taxes in Canada by going somewhere else. Um, business taxes are always popular to raise. And in fact, we've just recently had proposals from the federal government to limit interest deductibility for businesses that borrow to invest. Uh, That's an increase in business taxes that's particularly uh, damaging to investment. And all business taxes are damaging to investment. Uh, if if business if if people who uh, are uh, running a pension fund or uh, you know paying dividends to shareholders see an opportunity to lighten their tax burden by investing less or by investing outside Canada they'll do it. In fact, they have an obligation to do it. So both personal and corporate taxes uh, can, tend to be quite uh, undermining of economic growth because of their effects on work and investment. The GST does dampen demand a bit by making consumption more expensive in the moment, but it doesn't discourage work the same way that uh, personal income taxes do. It doesn't discourage uh, investment the same way that corporate income taxes do. And so what we're recommending in the shadow budget is uh, if you must raise a tax, raise the consumption tax, uh, don't raise the other taxes. And in fact, on the corporate side, we're concerned at how weak business investment in Canada has been recently, both relative to our own past experience and relative to what's happening in other countries, especially the United States. And so we we have a couple of measures in the shadow budget that are intended to improve the environment for investment. You're also pulling the plug on the idea of uh, basic income, you know, one that Hugh Siegel argued here at the Institute back in 2018 would be more realistic than most people think. What's changed? Well, I've never been a fan of the idea of the basic income and the best way to summarize why I don't like it is because we don't just use income as an indicator of people's need. Um, A very obvious in-your-face example of a situation where we are very generous to people in need because we have no doubt whatsoever that they are in need is when someone comes into a hospital emergency room bleeding. Um, That's an extreme example, but it makes the point that there are many criteria that we use to judge whether a person is in need or not. Um, Some of them are related to age. We provide compulsory schooling to people who are young, but we don't do it when they're older. Uh, Some of them are related to ability or or disability. There are many things that you can use to target benefits that you uh, uh, want to provide to people who need them. The difficulty with using only income is it's a bit like saying we're going to throw away all the rest of the information that we have about people and we're only going to uh, target income. And that's quite problematic. In the end, if you were to try and put something like this in place, you would end up uh, not eliminating a whole lot of the other programs that people often casually say a, a universal basic income could replace. We will still have all kinds of uh, uh, other programs. We will still have healthcare programs. We will still have education programs. We will still have disability benefits, various types of in-kind supports. I think we will still always have old, special old age benefits. If we don't get rid of the other programs, then in fact, you're layering something that would be extremely expensive uh, on top of all the programs that already exist rather than replacing them. And that means a very serious increase in taxes. So I think that the elegance of the pure basic income idea is that you're only using the one indicator. And yet, paradoxically, I suppose, 
that's its major defect. There are many other ways of targeting benefits to people in need. And if you don't use those other methods, you're just not going to end up with a program that can be generous and affordable at the same time. So I think it's a bit of a will of the wisp. I think the people who like the idea are motivated by a very attractive goal. But if you're not prepared to actually get rid of a whole lot of other programs and the taxes that pay for them, uh, it's just not a realistic thing to do. All right. So you're off Hugh Siegel's Christmas card list. I think we're just going to have to accept that. What about your colleague, Rosalie Watch? Because almost for a decade, the Institute has argued in favor of rebuilding pharmacare. But that's something both you, Drummond, and Laurent say need to be put on the back burner. Well, Rosalie and I have written a paper about that, and it was not in favor of a federally funded and federally administered program or something along the lines of what we have with the uh, doctor and hospital services that are covered by the Canada Health Act. Many of the advocates of a pharmacare program have that kind of idea in mind that the federal government would fund uh, a large part of uh, drugs that would then be made freely available at the point of consumption the same way doctor and hospital services are. There are reservations, very big reservations that we have about that kind of approach. Um, one of them is just that Doctor and hospital services are the areas where uh, provinces are already facing horrendous budgetary problems. Uh, Canada is unusual in the world in trying to fund all of those things through tax dollars. Um, Most countries have mixed systems. Uh, Most countries uh, charge some kind of health premiums, some kind of health insurance type of a system. Um, To think that we could run drugs the same way is to fly in the face of the evidence that we are having huge trouble supporting the programs that we fund in that way already. Another reason to dislike it is that to the extent that the federal government is in charge of drugs, you're actually kind of disintegrating the healthcare system. Uh, observer after observer, and Don Drummond has done a lot of work in healthcare. I don't pretend to speak for him, but uh, it's it's a common theme in the criticisms that we see of the way healthcare works in Canada that it isn't well coordinated. Um, that the different services that are provided through different funding streams don't integrate well. And it's very rare that you find any condition where uh, a Canadian patient is going to have good case management. So the problem with the pharmacare uh, program that's often thought of as desirable if it's run out of Ottawa is that it'll just make drug treatments that much less integrated with the other things that people need. Going to the positive side of it, it's actually not that common to find significant elements of the population in Canada that don't have drug coverage. Uh, In Quebec, they do have universal coverage and they've done it by mandating uh, that uh, people who aren't covered by a private plan will be covered by the public plan. And I think that that kind of gap-filling approach makes a whole lot more sense. It's much more driven by the provinces because pharmacare, uh, as it exists province to province, does differ quite a bit. Quebec has a relatively comprehensive system. Ontario's is less comprehensive. Um, But one size definitely does not fit all when it comes to filling in those holes. And so the idea that the federal government is going to come along and launch a whole new program in this area uh, just seems uh, wrong-headed in the sense that it doesn't produce a better integrated system. And the final thing that I would say about that is that we have seen in the past that the federal government has come in with shared cost programs, uh, very notably in healthcare, when they were flush with cash. 
and then years go by and they start to come under fiscal stress and they start to withdraw that cash and the provinces that are on the front line of delivering these services end up paying far more of the bill than they expected to to, to pay. It, there's every reason to think that PharmaCare would be the same. At the moment, the federal government is spending very freely, uh, but we know how the tide has changed in the past. It's likely to change in the future, and it does not make sense now for the provinces to start taking $0.50 cent dollars or whatever is on offer, only to find that a few years down the road when they're already facing all the stresses that they are going to face for doctor and hospital services, long-term care, uh, the, it's a long list, that in, in addition to that, they've got a new drug program program that the feds said they would fund and then didn't. Let's wrap this up by coming full circle back to the current events uh, in Ukraine. Ottawa is being urged to boost military spending in light of Russia's apparent decision to repatriate its former Soviet states. How does that play into your calls for judicious spending? It's clear that there's going to be new spending that wasn't anticipated. Um, There's a very high level lesson to learn from that, which is that you don't Uh, run flat out spending uh, in an unsustainable way uh, as though there won't be another crisis. There will be another crisis. Um, What we're going to see on the revenue side of the federal budget over the next little while is a lot of um, extra revenue coming in because inflation is higher than they forecast. And these higher fuel prices, uh, that's a boost for the Canadian economy in many ways, Um, notwithstanding the efforts that have been made to really cramp the growth of the fossil fuels industry. It's a vital industry for Canada. We're a net exporter. Uh, This is a big improvement in our terms of trade. And so along with the boost that it's going to give inflation, uh, it does mean that other things equal, we're going to see even more revenue flow into the federal coffers. Uh, I have no objection whatsoever if they want to spend some of that revenue on military assets because we haven't been pulling our weight in NATO. I have no objection if they use some of that money to improve Improve some of our energy transport infrastructure. Europe is desperate for gas. Uh, they're going to need oil. We haven't been good at building pipelines. We haven't been good at uh, shipping things out of our ports. Uh, so there is room for the feds to spend more on infrastructure and on defense, and they will have the revenue to do it. What I do not want them to see is taking that extra revenue and spending it on some other programs uh, that are going to enhance consumption, uh, but not enhance the growth of the economy over time and that in the longer run are going to prove very difficult for future Canadians to pay for. Well, Bill, as that ancient curse goes, may you live in interesting times. We certainly seem to be living in multiple interesting times. We do indeed. And yes, it's time to get serious about them. Bill Robson is the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute and one of the three authors of Getting Serious, a Shadow Federal Budget for 2022. To read the full document, visit cdhowe.org. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, April 11th, a webinar with the Honorable Peter bethlen Falvey, the Minister of Finance for the province of Ontario, on his government's plan to rebuild the provincial economy. On the 13th, a case for scale, quantifying how large institutional investors add value with Bert Clark of the Investment Management Corporation of Ontario. And May 10th, at the Institute's Toronto headquarters, former Bank of Canada Governors John Crow, David Dodge, and Stephen Polos on inflation, the threat, and the response. We hope to see you in person for that. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. 
The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.